Welcome back, Homecoming listeners. If you tuned in to the episode last week, you know that my friends Emily, Jungwoo, Amiri, and Michael joined me to have a conversation about Black and Asian history, solidarity, and struggle. And we ended up having such a great and insightful but long conversation that I ended up deciding to split it up into two full episodes. And if you haven't listened to part one yet, definitely make sure to check that out. It was released the week before this. But let's not delay the episode any longer. Here's part two of that conversation right now. I think that the question of solidarity that both of you have posed just really makes me think about social media. Um, And, you know, I deleted social media. I'm off social media. Um, I started Snapchat um, and Facebook, but that's, that's it. I don't have Instagram or Twitter. Um, I found that both of those platforms were very stressful. And I think that some people, some people's definition of solidarity um, might have come from maybe one Black person that they know or might have just been their own, like, made-up idea of it. But I just think that, like, I don't know, like, it just feels very lazy to me um, and, and not a lot of passion. Um, just the general feel of non-Black people on, like, social media and stuff like that. I feel like it's become almost trendy to post, like, statements, you know, Black screens, that kind of thing. I think that most of the people who are actually doing their part in finding their niche in combating um, what has become so like much of a burden for black people to deal with in America are the people who are educating themselves and donating and writing letters and calling politicians and things of that nature. Um, I think that even further into the whole, um, the wholeness of like the model minority myth, I think that like, People tell black people all the time to, to go to the polls and stuff like that. And like, since you said that like Asian people are oftentimes like apolitical um, and there's actually like not a lot of Asian representation like all across any form of government really. Like with black people though, like people think, people have this concept that like like the the people, um, I don't know how to say this, like the people breaking their way into the um, positions and into the seats at the table and stuff like that necessarily have black people's interests in their mind, um, but that's just been proven to be untrue time and time again. Um, and that's again because of, like, kind of like Amira said, like whiteness. Whiteness accepts certain people and they accept certain things and they reject certain people and they reject other things. And sometimes whiteness says, if you believe this, it doesn't matter what you look like. We're gonna act like you know, at least for the camera's sake and at least for the sake of our views that we say that we align with, that you are quote unquote one of us, um, and that we don't see color and that kind of thing. But that's that's an impossible notion. Like it's impossible not to see color. But then it's like what are you going to do about it? Um, I think that looking back at, I, I believe there was like a Blackout Tuesday or something like that, or Blackout Monday, something of that nature on Instagram. And just seeing black screens and stuff like that, to some people, it became almost marketable to their personal brand and the way that people view them to post. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that businesses, it comes to me, it comes no surprise to me that businesses kind of cemented themselves as, you know, people who are fighting and who are on our side and things like that. But I think that, you know, it's just, that's nothing without actual action. I think the one person in my entire, I'd say like the last 10 years who I've really seen, like as a white person, take an action that directly benefits Black people is, I I don't know the man's name, but he's married to Serena Williams. Um, he's the co-owner of, co-founder, I believe, of Reddit. Um, he donated a million dollars to Colin Kaepernick's like bail bond or whatever, and then he stepped down and said that they need to fill his role with a black person. Um, that to me is really like the is like a very single like act of of white allyship um, by white people who are also like 
like certain social classes and socioeconomic classes away from caring about most black people because most black people aren't in those higher classes so i think that like white people and even asian americans who like achieve that high class um kind of are very very disconnected from like the actual needs and what solidarity actually looks like for black people um because like i said like it could come in the form of social it could come in the form of money but it could also come in the form of like actually you know, marching with them and, and letting them see you and letting them hear you and hearing them back. Um, like I said, like, I feel like people want black people around, but they don't always want to hear what they have to say and, and how, um, and they don't want to be called down on like my, their microaggressions in the way that they perpetuate racism. Because I think that for us to dismantle racism, we have to be honest with ourselves and realize ways that we be perpetuated in, in things that we do and things that we say. Just bringing it back to Jungler and like your points about like social media, I think the fact, I think social media has done a lot of both good and bad and everything in between, um, especially when it comes to topics of race and exposing racism and racist thoughts and anti-Black ideologies. I think, you know, without the power of group me, that conversation probably wouldn't even happen um, in the Lambda chat. And then without the ability to screenshot, like that conversation wouldn't have been made public. And I think also with social media, you have companies doing good things. Like I feel like Ben and Jerry's gave a very good statement on everything that's happening, but then you also have companies making statements just because they feel like they should make a statement to keep their clientele. Um, and that could be like literally insert any brand ever. Um, and I feel like with social media and specifically in relation to like activism and protest. It's a platform that I think has allowed organizers to be able to reach folks easily and become and have any of their materials become far more accessible, especially to those who might not be physically able to, you know, be in the streets. But at the same time, I think it makes it even easier to clad yourself as an anti-racist who's doing the work despite you not doing anything. So I think with social media, you know, comes active organizing and participation and awareness, but then that it also comes optical allyship in a lot of in a lot of performative allyship. But I feel like I don't even know if it could happen without social media in the sense of posting something just because you feel like you should be posting it to be in solidarity as opposed to actually taking the time to do the work and reflect on your actions and make the changes to be an anti-racist. And I think it's interesting because I think it puts me at, personally at a crossroads and I don't know if I can full-heartedly support a lot of the posting I see and I think it allows many institutions that are perpetuators of the racism that we see, specifically colleges and large corporations, to get away with saying a statement, making a post, and then not doing anything. Um, but then at the end of the day, you still have the number of people who are happy and overjoyous that the company has made, the company or school has made a step, not even a step, like a, a, a side eye towards the right direction of progress and they're applauded. And then I think that just reinforces that the institution is, you know, progressive or liberal or that the, the brand is doing something for the benefit of its consumers. Um, but at the end of the day, the only people who are profiting from that like active, the quote unquote activism is the company or institution itself because it allows them to appear as something that they want to be without actually doing the work to become the figure that they want to be. Yeah, um, like you were saying, Emily, I think what I've been super aware of right now is 
the lack of actions that a lot of higher education institutions and like different schools, like what they're not doing, right? Like, I feel like a lot of them have been putting out these very broad and vague statements of just repeating the same buzzwords, like valuing diversity and inclusion and like supporting their students of color and like, we're going to do better and all of that. But it's like, what are you actually doing on a day-to-day basis? Like not just during this time, but what have you done and what are you planning to do to actually better support your students of color on campus and like make them feel more comfortable at your school? And for example, like even when I look at the Yale president statement that he sent out um, after George Floyd's murder, like he didn't even mention black or anti-blackness. And I feel like, like, it's just, it's just so frustrating and I'm just sick and tired of seeing all these broad statements with no concrete actionables and like people just not backing their words up with with actions yeah i don't think the i don't i don't think the impact or the importance of media can really be overstated um i mean even during the la riots there were a lot of attempts by korean and and black americans to try to improve relations um they held like joint church services like musical performances Um, a lot of korean shop owners donated to black communities a lot of Black Americans volunteered to help teach in classes for Korean Americans studying for the citizen, citizenship examinations. Um, none of that was covered by the commercial or the public news media. Um, all we kind of got was like those those videos of like the Korean shop owners, like the quote unquote roof Koreans trying to defend their shops. And they were only defending their shops because when they called 911, like the police wouldn't answer because they were too busy protecting wealthier, wider neighborhoods. Um, and that was, I think, like a big awakening moment for Korean Americans in terms of like their existence as people of color in this country. And I think a lot of Asian Americans in the past few months with all the anti-Asian sentiment and racism that has been, that has kind of reared its ugly head during, with the arrival of COVID, I think has also been like a rude awakening for us, how like racism is very much alive towards Asian Americans. Um, and I think with the prevalence of social media, we have kind of more power in our hands than ever to try to shape the larger narratives that like other people see. Um, and to your points about Emily and Angelina about like institutions, I think, yeah, I think like we should be loyal to like the people and the communities that we you know, meet and like create relationships with and not really to like institutions or uh, like administrations because I think I, th- I think this is like pretty pessimistic on my part but like these bastions of privilege and these bastions of like wealth that we've all attended or continue to attend they kind of they're like businesses at the end of the day um, and their kind of goal is to either like bring in some people of color so that they can market their diversity or like pick the right people so that they'll go, like, they'll go on and become like generous donors. Um, and it's important to like demand as people attending these institutions and perhaps like maybe being a little complicit in the, in the actions that these institutions do to marginalized people 
Um, and we need to demand that these people, that these institutions see us like as people rather than just like numbers or statistics or like donors. Definitely. I feel like part of it is not even surprised for me because a lot of these schools, again, like we all have experienced, um, are very familiar with sort of the talking points that need to be touched and the sort of like areas where improvement is necessary. But in many situations, the fundamental contradiction is that like they are businesses, they are, they aren't, they aren't divorced from the broader frameworks of, of oppression and of specifically anti-blackness that exists in our society as a whole. And so like, what would it look like for Columbia University to even say anything remotely and I, and I agree that there should be like there's no reason why you as a university can't proclaim this that and the third like I'd much rather that you say something at the very least than like not at all but I wonder like I don't I think it's a fundamental contradiction for these universities to be um thinking about like wealth redistribution or defunding their their relationships with their police you know that they work with locally and like it definitely it has happened and it probably will continue to happen as we see movement being made amongst the students and the students are like typically throughout history like the only reason why universities make progress but i feel like it's also challenging when you think about all of these institutions that that rest upon these fundamental sort of like characteristics these fundamental frameworks that see specifically like anti-blackness is like this rational and like from the origins of these schools to the way that we see admissions practices taking place throughout history like I feel like it's been a it's been a it's been a long history of this of displacement of um of violence at these universities both ideologically and physically so I, I feel like it it also like doesn't surprise me that they're struggling so much to comprehend their role within this because it almost is like their role is fundamentally opposed to in many ways some of the movements that we're calling for which is why i think it's difficult to even imagine like the existence of these poles of knowledge and like these ivory towers in a in a world that 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 doesn't contain some of the oppression that we talk about on the daily like so that's kind of how I'm also thinking about this in, in the sense of performative action. It's like, I feel like a lot of the performativity we're seeing is from people and from locations that haven't confronted the fact that like how they exist is not possible. You can't fit it within a framework, in my opinion, that prioritizes community. Like we can maybe think about like, I don't know what institutions can be doing to assist. But I also think like at a certain point, I wonder if it will get to a point where like fundamentally they're opposed. Like, the university's interest or any of these corporations, corporations especially, like the corporate interest is exploitation fundamentally, the idea of a corporation or that, even the idea of profit on like a very simple scale. So it's, it's, I think it's interesting to think about reform and accommodation and like tent, like small progress in the context of like these fundamental things that I think are contradicting, you know, and like how do you balance that if the balance is even possible at all. So I guess with that, my question for all of you, um, but really Amiri, because you brought it up. Um, I guess I'm curious, can, I, I have my personal thoughts, but 
do you think at all, like, can an institution or a company ever be anti-racist? That's a really good question. Slash, like, can they even do anti-racist work by nature of them being? I mean, I feel like the the anti-racist work that any of these corporations do ultimately involves their survival, right? Like, if if a corporation is trying to be anti-racist, that means that in some respect, it's anti-racism comes. Typically, like, the work that we've seen anti-racism take on means in some way, shape, or form, the, the corporation or the institution continues to exist. And so I guess from... It depends on how we approach it. We can approach it from like a general level and like, does the institution exist? Is that, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Like if it's a bad thing, then like, I don't think there's any room for anti-racism within the corporate structure. But we can also look at like progress in a like very realistic sense in that like we're within a structure that has been built for 400 years, like this is something that will not it could, but it probably won't switch overnight. So like anti-racism might still mean the existence of the corporation, but just like under different methods and methodology. But like, I wonder, I think it's a question of like fundamental nature versus sort of like how it exists in the, t- in the present. And I really don't know. I personally am kind of pessimistic in that regard, but I think definitely we can see like progress made. I just wonder how different progress is from like the fundamental status if that makes sense that's just me what do y'all think like i think that large corporations like i think that the only way that they can really achieve any sort of remnants of anti-racism is if their survival is not dependent on the exploitation subjugation and um degradation of black people you know what i'm saying like i feel like anywhere you look like there's some there's some form of racism um, in a company, like, I, I think a very good example would be Nike, because Nike, like, Black people love Nikes. If you look at the numbers, Black people consume Nikes, um, Asian people consume Nike, Latinx people, everybody loves Nikes, you know what I'm saying? And they have lots of Black faces, and, you know, they have people like Michael Jordan and LeBron James and Kevin Durant, who, again, are Black faces. But then on top of all of that, like, is Nike anti-racist? No way in hell, because it's like, they're, the way that they make money is on the backs of people of color, specifically black people. Um, they pay them horrible wages and they're working in like sweatshops and they're, they're, they're performing this labor. Like at the end of the day, like, and, and even the, the exploitation, like for some people, um, they only really love you. Like if you can make them money. Um, I think that um, if you're familiar, like with Derrick Rose, like Derrick Rose is a very, very good athlete. who's like the youngest MVP in NBA history, but he got hurt. And once he got hurt, like people kind of, he kind of fell out of the public favorite from a money-making standpoint. Because people were like, well, he can't make us any money. And, like, I'm sh- and like he lost tons of money from, like, his shoes that he was trying to put out. Nobody wanted to buy his shoes. Like, and he was pretty much, I guess, like, um, I don't know. Like, it's, I think that's, that would have been a perfect example for, like, any of the major corporations he was a part of to kind of realize, like, hey, we value him for more than just being an athlete. Um, I think, like, being an athlete, being an entertainer, being a comedian, all those kind of things are avenues for people to um, access property and wealth and things like that but at the end of the day people don't value you for anything more than those things that you're doing because when it comes down to it like any any time any any black person can be killed by the police like as much as people choose to think like it's like just a certain kind of person or if it's just if you have some sort of police interaction like 
any racist cop can can kill a black person. Um, and it's just been seen like, and it's not, and it's not, it's not limited to cops. You know, it's like people because of the whole um, infatuation with the Second Amendment and um, and people feeling the need to arm themselves. Um, people kind of take matters into their own hands, like the case of Latasha Harlins in 1991. People take everything into their own hands and they kind of like become the police themselves. Like everyone is is playing their own role in policing blackness. I feel like even if you have like a neighborhood watch, like they're policing blackness. They're not looking for a white guy who's walking down the street in the hood. But if you see a, a black teenager walking down the street in the hood, it, it, it ignites something in your brain that's just rooted in deep, deep anti-blackness. So I feel like from top to bottom, if you want to say the top is corporations and the bottom is something like, like a neighborhood watch or something very, very basic. Um, I think that um, anti-racism is just like a lot easier said than done. So I think that, I guess, I guess I'll join you on the pessimistic side. I just don't feel like any corporation can really um, make that step to make that transition to completely reverse the way that they think, completely reverse the ideology um, um, which, in which like they, they operate. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think like fundamentally the role of, of a corporation is to make money, is to make profit. Like CEOs are legally required to make profit for their shareholders. So I don't think you can like view a corporation or like a, like a school as like a moral thing. I think you need, as like bad as it sounds, we need to like find ways as people to like incentivize or pressure these, you know, corporations or like institutions to like to do things that support social justice because or else like they'll like be harmed from it. For example, um, like we all went to Phillips Academy. They posted like a black square. Um, I'm pretty sure they're not happy that there are 178 comments on there. And a lot of those comments are like, open your purses. Like, what the hell are you doing? Like, don't exactly like you need to, I feel like those are kind of the methods we need to do to like pressure these schools and these companies to kind of do the right thing. Um, I don't know if you're, there's a company called BlackRock. They're like a investment management firm. Um, and the CEO of BlackRock, Larry Fink, he sends out like an open letter to CEOs every year. Um, and this year, his, his letter largely focused on like environmentalism. And basically, like, obviously an investment firm is kind of as like capitalistic as you, as you can get. And he's not saying like, oh, us firms should be like, morally obligated to you know fight for environmental justice it's more that like consumers nowadays care a lot about the environment and they are going to make kind of consumption choices based on whether or not companies kind of support and are environmentally friendly so he was basically saying like we aren't going to invest in you unless you make like real changes to your company um, to make it more environmentally friendly um, and that's not like a moral thing that's that's like a purely capitalistic thing so i think in that, in that sense, we need to always like keep companies and institutions accountable and make it like really hard for them to, to like ignore these big social causes. Um, and I think that's like the main way, like outside from actual real structural change, um, I think that's kind of the main way we can, you know, keep these large, you know, things, these large groups, corporations accountable. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all of you guys. I think all of these huge institutions and corporations, like they're looking to make money and like that is their number one priority. Um, but I also just wanted to emphasize the importance of 
collective power and and consumer power, I guess, because um, kind of related to what you guys were saying about these corporations, like right now I'm taking this class on food, race, and migration. And right now we're looking at the restaurant industry and the agriculture industry and how these big industries are literally like, like their foundation is the exploitation of people of color and minorities. And within them, like a a racial hierarchy exists with white people at the top. And that is just so deeply entrenched um, in these systems. And their purpose is to like make profit. And how do they do that? They have to cater to the majority, cater to white people and specifically wealthy white people. Um, And like without us, like individuals calling these industries and these chains out, like they're not going to do anything. Like they're not going to change their behavior. But I think if we think about in the past, how collective power has really galvanized a lot of people and created a lot of change. Um, Like for example, I I was watching this docu-series, Asian Americans, on PBS, and in one of the episodes, they were talking about how Asian students, Black students, Latinx students, like, they were all coming together to fight for ethnic studies at San Francisco State University, and that was a prime example of all of these people of color coming together to fight for third world studies and and to get the school to teach the histories of their of, of of their people and i thought that was so incredibly empowering and i think if we can kind of channel that same energy and power together we could really bring about some serious change um and like I, I, I think that can't be emph- emphasized enough. Or or maybe or maybe I'm just being too optimistic about everything and then just simplifying everything. You know, I feel like at the end of the day, I personally don't think an institution can inherently be anti-racist because I think that would just be like ant- antithetical to their existence. Like if an institution really wanted to like talk big game like then like you know barnard columbia yale howard they'd all be like all right everybody who wants to come can come like at the end of the day like pay what you can if you can and as the first like 600 people like by lottery like they'll get a spot and we'll keep moving like that's how you'd be selecting your classes it just kind of like anyone who's interested can do it um and then obviously as capacity you know ebbs and flows with the amount of space you can physically hold like that's that's your graduating class and like that's that um because these institutions inherit by any barrier of admissions you're just like bearing someone from being able to have access to education which i feel like would inherently participate in like structural racism as we see it um so if you really want to be anti-racist like like i hate to tell you like you know that six-figure salary that a university president might have a million dollar salary in certain cases you wouldn't be getting that. Um, but I do think institutions can make changes to be less racist than they currently are. 
um, which is a step in the right direction, I suppose, um, before full like revolution. Um, and I do think to like what y'all were saying in terms of it would only an institution only becomes interested in making said less racist changes if the individuals are interested in making said less racist changes. Um, and I feel like those individuals would also actively have to be working towards anti-racist endeavors for voices to really be heard. Um, because I do think, at least in the example of, you know, students at San Francisco State University, you know, petitioning for and fighting for an ethnic studies, like the college itself might not see that as an interest, but then when Oftentimes colleges have, like when you put together all the students of color, at least I would hope most of them have, like maybe 40% at least um, of students of color, sometimes in some cases more. And that ends up being a large population of students. And at the end of the day, if your job as an institution or a corporation is to make money and a large portion of your consumers are focused on an issue, like you inherently would also have to focus on said issues. Um, and I think that unfortunately like money still talks um and right now money still plays a big part in the way change happens um so i think you see that in like folks saying like oh well i'm just not gonna shop at the store if the store doesn't do x or you know in the case of our high school like if andover doesn't do x then we're not going to donate and that is what will make people listen if you're painting their public instagram with comments like that's what's going to make folks listen and it seems so benign but at the same time it is nice to know that there's some element of control that the individual person can have on like the outcomes of certain things in society because at the end of the day like you as a person whether it is like your data your interest how you spend your money it is profitable um to one corporation or one institution or the other and i i hate that we end up being with a down to like a profit but you still have control over how you yourself are profitized to a certain extent in terms of you're choosing what to spend your money on you're choosing where you can buy your clothes you're choosing like what gains your attention um and inherently that means you're also choosing what what and where an institution also might um make their decisions for progress yeah i think it's like it's that real question of just like progress needing to be something that's immediate and then also, how do we make sure that the, the, that doesn't derail us from the ultimate goal, which is that these structures shouldn't exist regardless. And I think it's, you know, like that contradiction of we want a university or we'd want any of these businesses or institutions to be less racist, but then that can't be the goal, I guess, basically, it's like the way that I look at it, sort of like, even as we try, like, ultimately, we can't be satiated by reform. And I think at this point we're seeing, I think a lot of the, the rebellions that we're seeing across the country and across the world are indicating that restlessness. Like it's a restlessness that has existed since the 60s, since the 40s, since the beginning really of the, of the country, right? Like a restlessness with time and, and, and an impatience because these are our lives that we're talking about. And so I think like, especially now, centuries, decades after we've seen our ancestors really arguing about literally the same things um i feel like the push for reform becomes less becomes less sort of like alluring to me personally and more like another 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 40 year wait almost but it's 
it's important to do both, I guess. It's just really, I don't know. So it's a, it's a question ongoing for sure. Yeah, definitely. And another question I have for all of you guys, one that I've been honestly thinking about so much recently is that I see a lot of people posting on social media saying that, you know, like, if I see that you're racist, I'm blocking you, I'm unfollowing you. And if you're defending the police, like, nope, we're not we're not friends, please unfollow me. And it's like, I get it. I, I, I absolutely get it. But it's also this hard balance to maintain because in how I'm looking at it, it's just like those are the people we need to reach, right? And like have conversations with. But I don't know if I should even try in the first place. So how would you guys suggest going about and reaching out to those people who just have drastically different views from you? Like, how would you suggest approaching those conversations or reaching out? And like, in your opinion, is that even worth the time and energy to do? I think for me, it's, uh, it, it really is a question of if those are the people, like, are we, are we supposed to be reaching them? I think for me, I tend to focus my energy on people who I think would actually be willing to listen um, as opposed to discounting my experience as a whole. So I think oftentimes, like, I don't know if I even believe in bipartisanship, stay tuned, but I do think I just, in the efforts that I do, I'm always looking for the folks who are like, oh, well, you know, I'm like apolitical, or like I try to stay out of politics, um, as opposed to folks who have like a dead set opinion that is the exact opposite of mine. Um, is it me wanting an echo chamber? I don't think so, but if that's what it is, it is, because I know I'm not gonna exhaust myself attempting to have a conversation with someone who is still debating if my existence is like, if that's like something that should happen, if I like should have the rights that I deserve like i don't know where that conversation would go to slash if that's really a conversation um or just like an argument about whether or not people who look like me deserve to have the rights and freedoms of people who look like you um and if like a, a job that one could quit at any time is the same as like a lived experience that can never be removed like i just feel like that's not a conversation that i'm like a it's not a conversation b it's not something that i'm going to be talking about because i have other things to do um so i personally like I just, I'm like for the blocking and for the like complete removal, because I do think eventually that person with said views will realize that a lot of the social circle has disappeared and why that is. And if they can stand talking to the same six people, you know, go for it. Um, but I do think uh, like things aren't going to wait up for them and they'll realize like society has just like transcended like I feel like personally we've transcended like social conservatism like we've just there's no place for it there's no need for it um i don't know if there's anything that is like socially conservative that could be implemented in a wide scale that is not inherently harmful um that's my bold opinion but like um like that's something that like i just so there are certain conversations that i don't bother engaging in with certain folks but i do think there is I think the group of people that we need to reach are the folks who just haven't had these conversations and either out of like ignorance because of their location and just like, you know, you might not be talking about racial justice if you're coming from a completely homogenous group. I think that's very different. 
then you might not be talking about racial justice because you've intentionally chosen a completely homogenous group. Um, and I think those are two very different groups of people, one I'm willing to work with and one I'm not. Um, so I, I think if you might be coming from a family situation in which you're surrounded by folks who are specifically like, completely against the Black Lives Matter movement or just completely against like race, like conversations of racism and racism existing in our society, if that's like a debatable fact um, where you are. I think it just, I personally, I don't know if I have advice. I think it's just really like preserving your energy for the folks who you might be able to have that conversation and sway towards progress and then saving your energy and you know planting seeds possibly that might grow but might not watering them but then know at the end of the day like if the plant doesn't bloom it doesn't bloom um and if you've done all your work i think it's knowing and holding yourself accountable that you've actively tried and not just labeling said person as like oh i think they would think x, like xyz so i'm not gonna try you know actually attempt to engage with the person first and then make that decision. But I do think once it's confirmed that this person has no interest in actually hearing the side of progress, then I don't know if it's actually worthwhile to invest your energy in that person. Um, I definitely think like in terms of, you know, people posting like, if you believe this, unfollow me and that kind of thing. I think that that is really just like oxymoronic because like if you think about the way that social media is used, um, everybody's really a reporter of, of the news. You know, everybody can report news. Everybody can, if you check someone's story, you can learn a fact that you did not know before. That is literally them showing you the news from their perspective. Um, and I think that in terms of like, it's also, I think it's also kind of like, um, almost like a deflection tactic for people to kind of be, be able to say, well, I don't have these people following me and I'm not friends with these people. But it's like, yes like you probably like if, if you realize that that was not a friendship that you should be in like that's good that you decided not to be in that friendship but i think that those people like their their sheer majority is something that we have to definitely consider i think that um a lot of the times like you you would think like people are quiet quote unquote quiet white people because like they're silently agreeing with you but sometimes they're silently like violently disagreeing with you because like the their, their inner conflict is their belief system and what they've been um taught in schools and what they kind of what they prioritize in terms of what they believe and doing what's actually right i think that we all have that internal conflict but i think that for them in the position that they're in in terms of um dismantling like um white power structures like they have to put all that to the side um and realize like just because you were taught a certain thing does not necessarily mean that it was correct for a lot of us until the age we turn maybe like i want to say me personally i didn't really develop like my own full thoughts until like I was 13 or 14 because your parents and the people that teach you in schools, they, they project their thought systems onto you. They project their belief systems onto you. So it's like, you have to understand like for you to, you, you just be doing yourself a complete disservice. Like, especially if you're a young, a younger person who believes things like this, if you're just choosing to shut out any of anybody else's perspective, because it's like that whole my way or the highway thing is literally just um, kind of, it just kind of pro further proves the point of, um, the presence of systemic racism and how you can choose, you can legitimately choose not to be a part of this conversation. You can choose not to click on the link. You can choose not to donate and all those things. But I can also choose not to be friends with you. I can choose not to, to entertain you. And I can choose not to allow myself to be tokenized because I feel like a lot of people don't 
like if you look at a white a predominantly white fraternity at a predominantly white school like they they don't they don't do things that are necessarily quote unquote unpopular because um advocating for black people and black liberation is unpopular to them so they they they'll be able to say they have their token they have their few um people who are not white but then if you look further onto that like i said they don't want to hear their voices so it's like um you either it's it's almost like a it's a, it's a it's almost a more difficult situation for the person posting than the person who's intended to receive the post but i think that when looking at both of it like the person posting is literally thinking about like their totality like well i feel whole if i just sit here and i know that this person who's legitimately done many racist things or like follows donald trump or kind of um regurgitates like that um ideology like can i follow this person and still feel like I'm not doing a disservice to my own people. Uh, yeah, I, I don't try to think like I, I personally don't really like I kind of gave up with with having like, to be honest, I don't really even have that many conversations about this stuff online with some of my friends, like or just people who I follow, because like kind of like what Emily was talking about earlier, like it really just doesn't seem like a good way to spend my personal energy. And I also recognizing that like, in lieu of having some like some of those conversations are important, right? But like, I think also we need to recognize that like, and obviously like your personal capabilities is, is ultimately takes over. And so like, if I don't feel like I have the energy to go back and forth on Instagram about racism or police brutality or whatever, like that's just what it is. That's just how you are as a person. I also think it's like, um, we're at a time where there's so many resources that honestly can explain these things to you better than I can. So if I'm going to sit here in a conversation with you for like, an hour trying to figure it out like yo like if 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 your intentions are genuine i assure you that with three links that i can maybe even shift you towards or with the google search like you probably will get a much more a whole uh aspect of this than i could ever teach you in a conversation and you'll probably get it from a different perspective that may or may not be more in depth than my own so like i think for me it's it's gotten to the point where like depending on the people that I'm interacting with, like if I'm talking with my close friends, right? Like none of us are really in a position where we have to feel like we have to explain anything to each other. So those conversations are typically, the, at least the conversations I have, like even this one right now, like I feel like is a lot deeper and there's a set of assumptions that underline what we're saying. Like we all agree that certain things exist. We all agree that certain structures are in place. So those conversations like that, that entry point isn't even necessary. But if somebody else came into this conversation that was a little bit different as far as how they approached it like that would take a lot of energy and not even in a bad way like I feel like people enter different conversations at different spaces and that's normal like nobody I don't know anything I don't know everything either like so I don't even view it as sort of like a, a hierarchical thing I just think of it as like there can be multiple forms of instruction going on multiple forms of learning and like each stage is valuable if you are interested genuinely in accessing the knowledge and accessing the understanding and if that's the case i can point you to resources that can do it but i personally like i don't think i i'm equipped or have the time or energy to do it and um i feel like that doesn't mean though that i have to shut you off it just means that like recognize like i if you send me a message saying hey i don't agree with this post like cool and then like that's it <laughs> like i'm i don't know that's kind of how i've been approaching it personally and you know i um yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I think of it like also I'm trying to become a teacher later in life. And so, like, I'm recognizing that, like, I probably won't be able to teach K through six or K through seven. Like, I just don't think I'll be able to connect 
in that type of setting with younger students like that. But I probably will be, I'm excited to teach high school. But like, there's other people who like could never teach high school or like don't want to teach high school, but they're really fascinated about teaching like middle schoolers or elementary kids. And so I think like when it comes to having conversations about anything, but especially about structural racism or oppression, like there are different ways and different um, strengths that people have in certain conversations that like other people might not have and might not be interested in. So like we can talk about this in the context of art. Like I would love to talk about like music and stuff and maybe somebody else can really break down the definitions. And I just think there's multiple ways where we can approach learning that decentralizes it and also shifts um, like the burden of having to explain things. You know, that's kind of how I've been thinking about it, at least personally. Yeah, I think it's important to, to like, work within your spheres of influence, I guess. Um, I think, like, as, a, as an Asian-American, I've been trying to have a lot of conversations with my parents and, and my family members um, often because I'm probably the only person that would ever kind of talk about these things with my parents. Um, I think it's important to kind of assume good faith when you're trying to meet people, I guess, like, in the middle. Um, sometimes you need to kind of put in that extra work to kind of, you know, go closer um, to them. I think it's important to like be understanding of like the difference in experiences that you might have. This is me speaking as like an Asian American um, with like your parents, for example, kind of the different educations that you were taught uh, and also educating yourself and others about, you know, your history. I mean, I didn't learn about the history of Asian Americans until like, my last term in high school. Um, and then my parents never learned about any of this, like in the past, like 50 years of their lives. So it's important to like educate yourself and also kind of situate your histories um, within the kind of the other histories of like people of color and other marginalized groups. Um, kind of emphasize like the importance of solidarity and emphasize that we, like we as Asian, Americans don't exist in a vacuum. We exist together with other like people of color and people of other races. Thank you. Yeah. I have just been thinking about that a lot because I've seen a lot of that kind of activity on social media and you know, I grew up in a super white neighborhood and town and so I feel like my entire life I've been just trying to get these like points across um but yeah you guys are right like if someone is sort of against and like in opposition to your entire existence in the first place like that conversation would be so difficult to have and like probably not worth it um yeah and my final question to all of you guys, just looking forward and even right now, what do you think is the best way that we, you know, specifically as the Asian American community, but other also other um, non-Black people in general, like how can we best support you? Um. That's a that's a really interesting question because I think that it definitely looks like different things, um, depending on what you personally kind of dabble in or like what discipline you're restricted to or what you have access to. But I also think like generally speaking, um, 
I just really think it just has to be a complete and utter like commitment to reforming like the entire system that we're all kind of a part of. Um, and it's like, how do you convince people who benefit from that system in one way or another, or who find themselves benefiting in that system? How do you convince those people to reject what they benefit from, you know? And how do you convince those people that um, it's, it's okay to admit like in the past that you were kind of someone that perpetuated these, these racist notions, like, but it's one step for you to really um, understand it, but it's another step for you to kind of take accountability sorry accountability wow some people like will be like oh well yeah i might have said that stuff in the past but like that's not who i am now well that's okay and i'm glad you can realize that but but what's the next step for you um i feel like it's been it's just been completely normalized kind of how amir said like anti-blackness is very normalized um and the exclusion of uh, i think an objective and sans stereotype black narrative is something that people kind of really need to um realize um and that even goes as far as like diversifying the media that you consume um i wrote an article um a, like maybe like a weekish ago um and i kind of talked about this a little bit but like the media we consume kind of plays a big part into what we think we understand about the systems that are kind of controlling all of us um jungwoo you said like white media kind of is like heavily consumed um amongst like lots of asian americans and i think that like it's a very it's very important for people to realize like that there's a kind of narrative that is being pushed out to all of us that put labels and um, see, that put labels on people of color, especially black people, and that see people of color, especially black people through a certain lens. Um, and that lens is 1000% always limiting. Like it's always a limiting lens, um, but you can't really realize that because part of you is patting yourself on the back and being like, I did the work, but you did not do the work. Um, you did work, but you went the wrong way, you know? So it's like, realizing like what what work is is necessarily beneficial towards you i think is super important um if you for example if you have people who you consider like very close friends and they're black like you should feel open to having like this kind of difficult conversation not necessarily interrogating them and making them educate you on everything because i think that people have to realize it's also not black people's um job to kind of educate everyone on everything um these things exist these tools exist um, and people shouldn't just be accountable for not knowing certain things. Just like, just like people would look at me crazy if I didn't know the words to the national anthem, you know, like, because that's something that we've all decided, like people have decided um, that everyone has to know. But if people, not everyone knows who Lewis Latimer is. People aren't expected to know that, you know? So it's like, it's like just going into, I think the resources that are available to you um, and including the resources of people, uh, of black people. Um, because we're only 13 something percent of the country, but it's just like, you know, there's, there's tons of different black people. Like that's something that I want to go into a predominantly black school. My school, Andover was very white and my school now is like 94% black or something crazy like that. But even then, like there's so many nuances within the black community and there's so many different kinds of black people. You know what I'm saying? Like what is, what is a black person? Um, so I think that taking all those things into account um, and activating like your resources to the best of your ability. Yeah, I definitely also think like organizing and we talked about this like when we were on the phone, just like preparing for the podcast, like just trying to find ways to organize around wherever we are, I think is also important. I think a lot of times it will come through support of organizations that already exist, right? So like supporting financially the organizations in Minneapolis or in New York that are 
bailing people out or that are building abolitionist like futures like those are concrete things that i think non-black people can definitely do monetarily can do through ideological like sharing and like reposting and just like building building the the platforms of some of these organizations i think that's probably like a a one that i think is really important but i also think like ultimately it will come when like communities and i think john you were speaking about this earlier like an investment in community happens like on a broad scale. And so even as we think about like, what can we do to support black people now? Like I'm also, f- I also feel like it's important to think about like how we can maintain those questions like internally and like, how can we start to talk about these things like amongst ourselves, like is one thing that I'm trying to think about at least. And so I feel like that, that can really apply to anybody um, in this moment, I think. Yeah, I think for me, I think the biggest thing is just having the conversations with those in your personal networks. And I think specifically having the conversations constantly and not getting frustrated. I think one thing that I've personally been seeing from like my non-Black friends who are doing the work, I think they, at least never to me, um, but they'll mention in passing how exhausting it is to like, convinced and talk to their family members uh, specifically about like anti-blackness um and then if they're white about like racism as a whole in this country and i think there's like the fatigue of racism that i think people are some specifically white people are finally starting to understand how exhausting it can be to not be a person who is you know just complicit in racism that occurs um and you know what then it kind of leads them to the bigger conversation of what that lived existence would be like. Um, so I think definitely for any sort of, if you have a network of white friends, definitely having them, you know, do the work as well um, is something that can be done. And I think specifically, at least an act of solidarity between like the black community and Asian, Asian Americans, I think just, I think addressing it as it comes up, because I do think with the, lack of i think the lack of history and the lack of this information available between like within the lack of information and resources about um solidarity between racial groups that aren't of color that aren't white um i think there's not a lot of information and i think there's no blueprint and i think that's what makes it hard because when it's like a lot of the concrete things that i would tell someone to do it's like odds are you're probably already doing it because you yourself is a, are a person of color. So I think it comes a lot specifically with addressing anti-Blackness that might be prevalent in possible like home cultures or inside of your home in specific um, with family members. And then I think also just the awareness and understanding of knowing that struggles can exist simultaneously. And that also doesn't and there's at least one thing that I've like seen on my timeline and through social media is that there's it does it can feel like a you know how do you care about all the issues in the world while not exhausting yourself so I think there's also that understanding of how racial justice can be exhausting but then also understanding that you can take a break it doesn't mean that you know every single day like every single thing you do has to be for the betterment of racial justice in dismantling white supremacy. Um, that would be exhausting. I think even as a black person myself, I do, don't do that consistently. I think there are some conversations I see that I could have, but if 
I truly don't have the stamina I won't engage in. Um, so I think it's self-preservation. And I think specifically self-preservation in the interest of continuing to better racial relations within our two groups um, and fostering that elsewhere. I think that's a big thing for me. And I think it also is a lot of just like learning that history. I think that's something I personally have to do myself too in terms of like learning what solidarity looks like and what that means and focusing on issues within your group, obviously, but also issues of racism outside of your group and how struggles for Latinx folks would look different from struggles from Black people specifically, and then also the intricacies of how that looks like. So specifically for me, one thing I've been interested in recently is like Black immigration. Um, so looking at looking into that, um, and also like learning specifically. I think after this, I'm going to read up and learn about if there is a history and if there is any sort of documentation about specifically how solidarity movements between Asian and Asian Americans and Black Americans have worked out in the past, and what did that look like, and why don't we learn about that? Um, so I think it's just a continuation of doing the work and then doing the work with intention and then doing the work in a way that doesn't exhaust yourself. Um, yeah. Amazing. Thank you guys so much. Um, we've been talking for a while now, so we can probably end the episode for now. Um, I know that we weren't able to cover everything, but we did cover a lot and I definitely encourage the listeners to go out and do your own research and learning, you know, um, and thank you guys, Emily, Amiri, Michael, and Jungwoo, seriously so much for agreeing to do this. It just means so much that you all took time out of your days to do this with me and I've honestly learned so much from you all and our conversation has brought up so many things that I need to think more about. And, you know, for example, like our histories and the histories of activism within our communities and where Asians kind of fall in racial hierarchies and all of this social media activity that's been happening. And I'm sure that this conversation has also brought up thoughts and questions for our listeners too. And I've put some resources on Black and Asian solidarity and racism in Asian American communities together and put them on the social media platforms of Homecoming. But again, I definitely recommend for the listeners to, like you all have said, you know, have conversations within their own communities and their own spheres and like also to the homecoming listeners like reach out to us if you want to start a conversation or have questions and I think it's so important to continue these types of conversations and you know keep fighting and pushing forward even after this social media wave has sort of died down um you know like we should be continuing this fight and we shouldn't let it stop here. But guys, like, thank you so, so much. You all just give me hope. And, you know, it just, it just empowers me to know that I have friends like you. So thank you again so much for joining me and having this conversation.
Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Homecoming listeners. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Homecoming podcast. I really hope you enjoyed the last two episodes, part one and part two of the conversation about Black and Asian solidarity. And please, please remember to continue learning and having tough conversations and opening your mind and your heart to new ideas. Um, Also remember to subscribe to Homecoming on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and wherever you listen to podcasts because I've got more episodes on Black and Asian solidarity and how Asian Americans can be better allies coming up and you don't want to miss them.